So the business of tonight is our uh, Academy Discourse, as I said. Our special guest, uh, Philip Lane, MRIA. Uh, the, it's a slightly different format. It's in conversation with Alan Barrett, also MRIA. Uh, the topic being priorities in European economic policy in the aftermath of Brexit. Philip Lane joined the European Central Bank as a member of the Executive Board in 2019. He's responsible for the Director General Economics and the Director General Monetary Policy. Before joining the ECB, he was the Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. From 2012 to 2019, he was Waitley Professor of Political Economy at Trinity College Dublin. Alan Barrett, who will be doing the difficult job of uh, leading the conversation, uh, and also taking questions from the audience, is director of the Economic and Social Research Institute. He has contributed significantly to economic policy in Ireland. He was a member of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council and is currently a member of the Climate Change Advisory Council. He's shared the annual National Economic Dialogue from uh, 2015 to 2017. So now I invite uh, Philip Lane and Alan Barrett to take their seats and to begin the conversation as they taking questions from the audience as they go. Okay, so sit down and relax. This is um, very pleasant, I have to say. You're obviously you're a good draw, Philip, as well. I have to say we've uh, we've a full house tonight. So um, as the president suggested, uh, the way we're going to run things for about the next hour is um, I'm going to ask. Philip, uh, a set of questions on a range of topics, uh, but at various sort of points during the evening, uh, in the interest of making sure that it is a, a conversation across the uh, the full audience, I'll go to the audience from time to time, and you can pitch in questions uh, at that stage as well. So I uh, said so we'll take we'll take about an hour, and we we've a lot to get through. So uh, let, let let me kick off, and the way I thought I'd begin things, Philip, is. Uh, just a couple of quotes from the European Commission, uh, their, their most recent uh, forecast document. And these are the sort of things that are now being written about the, uh, the European economy. So it says the, uh, the Commission, the European economy has entered a protracted period of subdued growth and low inflation. Uh, they talk about the EU economy, which slowed down in the second quarter of 2019, is uh, not likely to re rebound in the near term. And then talking globally, they say global growth uh, is set to fall this year to a pace usually associated with the brink of a recession. It's pretty depressing stuff all in all. And so um, I'm going to get you talking initially about, presumably you agree that the, the, the growth outlook is, is, is depressed like that. Is it just cyclical issues we're worried about here? Or are we looking at a prolonged period of subdued growth? <laughs> Okay, so I think uh, the way to think about this question has, has both elements. We are, here we are 2020. Depending on how you date the end of the European and global financial crisis, uh, which had different waves of it, uh, but to some people the turnaround was 2013. Uh, seven years later, there are still uh, many legacy effects of the crisis. So the history of financial crises, and this is an example, if you like, where uh, historians have been very important in, in feeding the thinking today, is if you look at the history of financial crises going back hundreds of years, if you have a big crisis, it takes about 10 years for the economy to return to normal. So what we have now is, at one level, uh, long-term factors, such as the demographic transition. Because remember when, uh, 
the European Commission or we give out that kind of number. That is the overall size of the economy. A very basic driver of that is how quickly is the population growing? And when in Europe the population has grown to slow down quite a bit, in contrast to the US economy where through migration and higher fertility, that, that's a very basic number. It's a very pretty fundamental demographic fact. Uh, China, the, the workforce population is shrinking. Japan, it's shrinking. And so this era, era of low growth, another way to think about that is you have a very basic driver, which is stabilization or over time the shrinkage of the advanced economy population is a basic fact. And then the really big issue is uh, what is the future of productivity? Because if you like, uh, people have noticed that the ability to produce more output per worker has gone down. And the big question there, is that a temporary phase or is that the new normal? And if you like, this goes to the, when you look every day in the newspaper, all the innovation, uh, technology, digitalization, artificial intelligence, life sciences, you might say, look at all the innovation, surely we should be becoming more productive. Uh, but there's a lot of work which indicates it takes a long time to learn how to use that, the new technology. So we, we could be in a period of a uh, search. Uh, lots of businesses are uh, spending time saying, well, how can I use uh, artificial technology? How can I use new computing power? And uh, eventually, like electrification took a long time to kick in in terms of the overall economy. Uh, trans, you know, there's all sorts of innovations that take decades, not months, to work out. So uh, I'm not a futurist. It's not my job to predict what's going to happen. By the way, it's not. It's to deal with whatever happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm open-minded about whether this is something we have to settle into. And on demography, maybe we do. Uh, but for productivity, uh, let's see. Because honestly, uh, for the European economy, uh, until the labor market is full, the incentives to invest are limited. Because in the last decade, if a firm wanted to produce more, given all of the unemployment, uh, just adding to employment is maybe the first step. Then uh, when you're fully employed, then the, you know, the incentive as a firm is, uh, workers, I can't find them, they're expensive, how can I replace the worker with a new machine or a new technology? And that's how innovation typically happens. Mm. So the fact we've had this big slowdown in the world economy, there are temporary reasons for it, uh, but probably the, you know, uh, where the longer term is, let's be humble about it, we don't know. Okay. Um, and so let's see. So, let's see. Just, I mean, to pick up two of the themes there. So, again, the the, the slow population growth. I guess we, we can all see that the, the the productivity growth issue. I, I often think comes as a surprise again to a lot of non-economists. I mean, we're looking at this uh, all the time. But again, as you sort of pointed out, when people see um, you know all the technical innovations or whatever like that, I think it does seem to come as a bit a bit of as a, a surprise uh, that there's less happening there. But just on the on the the first point uh, coming out of the recession was it not no normal coming out of a recession that you actually do see a sort of a rapid jump back or is, is that a it just sort of seems to me uh, that one of the things that might have been expected was the uh, the, the rebound 
Um, and that what made this recession a little bit different is that rebound didn't really seem to happen. So the, the uh, rebound is, if you like, when you have a, a normal recession. When you have a recession, which is compounded by all of these uh, balance sheet issues, so many firms, so many governments, so many households are over indebted. When you have to work through all of that debt, that takes a long time. So many households, I mean, if you think about the Irish case, for a long time, many people were saving a lot in order to get rid of the high debt or because they were scared. Only very recently has consumption uh, heated up in the Irish economy. Many firms across Europe, uh, and there's two types of firms. Some types of firms have been fine. Other types of firms have had to deal with lots of debt as well. The banking system has had to deal with non-performing loans, lack of capital, and governments only in the last two years have, have the European uh, governments moved essentially from austerity or neutrality to being supportive of the economy. So it really does take a long time. Uh, so this is the lesson of the 1930s and earlier big crises. So um, you're, you're not as, as pessimistic as some. I mean, say for example, I'm going to throw out the terms um, secular stagnation. Uh, and again, for the non-economists in the audience, there is a group of economists uh, who seem to worry now that we're in this sort of very prolonged period of low growth, low inflation. Um, they relate it, I guess, to excess savings and stuff like that, no good investment opportunities and all those sort of difficulties. You don't seem to be as pessimistic about that. You, you're, you're sort of taking more of a, a wait and see approach. For, well, I think for several reasons. One, again, if I were an investor, I'd really have to decide what do I believe. Because if you have to decide what you're going to do with your investment, uh, you need to really take a decision. As a central bank, uh, let me emphasize, we have to be responsive to whatever happens. So I have an open mind. But I think, uh, just thinking about it, it'd be a very large coincidence to have this uh, secular stagnation kick in at the, perfectly the same time as we have recovery or slow recovery from a financial crisis. Mm. So you have two explanations of what's going on. And to me, the safe uh, way to think about it is a little bit of both. Putting all of your uh, intellectual belief on secular stagnation is premature. And then, as I said earlier on, there is this other school of thought, which is we are in the middle of a technical revolution. But we are, it's called the J-curve effect. Until you, you know, initially productivity goes down because you spend all your time uh, learning how to use your iPhone. You, a lot of time is wasted because you're exploring different ideas, most of which don't work. But eventually it kicks in. So there's a non-linearity where initially productivity falls and then it can go up quite quickly. Okay. And so there's an, another literature uh, which is quite extensive which is, is more optimistic. Uh, I look about literatures, uh, and let's see, let's see. Okay, so uh, I don't, I'm not trying to be depressing for the sake of it or anything like that, but we, we've talked about some of the sort of structural issues. Can we talk for a minute just some of the, the, the more short-term issues? Uh, and again, a lot of the sort of commentary seemed to, in recent time talk, seem to be talking about uh, 
trade tensions, obviously the Trump impact, and that one of the things that was dragging growth down internationally uh, was fear of where all these trade wars were going. Uh, talk too about uh, China, the, the sort of a natural slowdown in China, and that had been such an engine for quite a while. So that you know there were these sort of more typical cyclical type factors. Uh, I guess we can mention the coronavirus, can we? Um, you, you can say a word or two about that. But are there these you know more short term cyclical issues that that we should be worrying about too? So it depends uh, where you categorise those issues. So in twenty seventeen the European economy and the world economy grew quite quickly. And actually, the year kind of rapid recovery narrative was in the air in 2017. Then uh, several factors meant there was this kind of uh, slowdown. Trade is, the trade policy issue is there. But actually, now the world economy, which is a solid success, uh, lots of countries around the world are now important to the world economy. Whereas if you go back 30 years ago, when you think about the world economy, a lot, large fraction of global activity was in the US and in Europe. Imagine the 08-09 crisis if China had not been growing quite quickly. It really was an important source of uh, demand for European firms that they could sell to China, and more generally, the emerging world. Uh, what's interesting, and we spend a lot of time uh, when we think about what's going on, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to think about China, but you have uh, Turkey, Brazil, Iran, Iran is a big economy, Venezuela, there's lots of countries which individually you might say is not big enough for world GDP, but there have been so many individual events in various countries in the last two years that uh, when you add it up, it's a, it is a drag. China, of course, it has to slip, you know, every model you can think of says, as you get richer, your ability to grow quickly goes down. So they are on this kind of gradual glide path, uh, which is still very important to the world economy. They're hovering around 6%. That's not the 9 or 10 they had a few years ago. But 6% of a much bigger base is still uh, super important. Uh, and then uh, when we think about trade, you have the policy issue about tariffs. Uh, you have the issue about, the f the, you talk about uh, climate change, the future of trade. When, uh, if you take a 10 or 20 year horizon, firms are looking and saying, if it's going to be the case, energy prices go up, uh, maybe it's not so sustainable to have global supply chains. Maybe we need to go uh, more uh, local. And when you add on the kind of uh, geosecurity issue about is there going to be a single world technology platform or is there going to be division, west-east division, where for geosecurity reasons, uh, maybe the world internet be split in multiple dim dimensions. So there's a lot of questioning about okay. the, the future of the world system. Okay. Um, you're cheering me up, by the way, uh, which is which is good. Um, but but. You know, there's again this this ongoing concern uh, that if world economies do dip a little bit more, uh, the standard expectation would be central banks like the ECB and the others would 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 move in with a sort of standard monetary policy. Uh, but that particular tool is not going to be available if the next recession happens quickly. Um, and I suppose there does seem to be again a greater sort of concentration on the possibility that fiscal policy is going to have to move into the uh, the breach. 
is that a sort of a, a view that you share that if the, the a significant downturn happens relatively quickly that's we're, we're in new territory so I think there are two levels to this uh, central banks um, you know ECB uh, the other major central banks have a very accommodative policy now by the way that provides a lot of insulation for any future downturn if interest rates are already low, which they are, uh, it does mean uh, the kind of dynamics of a negative shock are kind of uh, buffered to a large extent. It's funny, I, I was given some advice by somebody earlier on, don't, don't let them go on with economic uh, jargon. So buffers negative shocks, got a few mentions there. And stuff yeah, like so that. I mean, so essentially it provides insulation. So in terms of uh, those of you uh, who are old enough to remember old type recessions where you have interest rates spiking up uh, and uh, loss of control of inflation and so on. There's a lot of negative uh, dynamics in the recession. A lot of those are kind of switched off at the moment. But it, does, it is the case that uh, if there were a serious negative shock, so something uh, leading to a, a decline in activity, uh, we have been uh, creative in recent years going beyond just interest rate policy to uh, quantitative easing, uh, targeted lending, uh, pushing the interest rate negative. So we, we do not assess that uh, we, are put, uh, we are at the limit. We're obviously closer to the mm -hmm. limit than we used to be. So we do say uh, fiscal policy should play more of a role. But let me emphasize is that now, 10 years after the crisis, uh, the ability of governments to step in if needed has gone up because uh, in the last decade across Europe there's been a lot of improvement in the public finances so say if you take some of the big countries in continental Europe and uh, you know Germany and so on there's been a very big reduction in the level of debt which means if and the German government has been clear if there's a big shock they will step in so I think uh, the ability to step in is there. But what's interesting is uh, when you have a, a mild slowdown. So how do you ca ca categorize a European e economy going at 1%, which it is? Is this a, a big problem or is it just disappointing? Uh, and I think for, in broadly speaking, uh, various finance ministers are saying, we will hold off until there's a, only if there's a big shock do we step in for disappointment below a uh, trend uh, yeah. can I, I always find it fascinating and again um hopefully most people in the, in the audience following the discussion but there was always the sort of the standard tools of, of macroeconomic policy were monetary if there was a recession monetary policy on the one hand that you would cut interest rates to boost uh, economic activity or you would you would get governments to spend more and uh, I was reflecting on this recently, but certainly when I was sort of learning economics, there was always a, a view that central bankers were terribly uh, suspicious of expansionary fiscal policy. And um, you'll remember this as well. There was almost this sort of notion that uh, fiscal policy often, if, if central bankers observed fiscal policy becoming too loose, central bankers would react. Uh, and so that, you, you know, you always had this inbuilt, uh, you know, failure uh, piece. So I find it fascinating you as a central banker now, and not just you, but the sort of broader central bank community, have started looking uh, to the, the fiscal authorities uh, and sort of borderline 
it maybe encourage is too strong a word, but certainly this notion that they, they should be on standby uh, to do more spending if, if required. So at one level, this is not new. And this is why, by the way, it's good to study history. Because this is all in, in the debate in the 1930s. So we had this before. So the, the textbook, which, which chapter of the textbook you look at, uh, under these conditions, you look at the chapter which says, under what conditions uh, can a fiscal expansion be supportive of the macroeconomy? And in a condition where interest rates are very low, we think the fiscal multiplier is quite high. Most of the time, uh, as you say, we would, uh, central banks would tend to offset any fiscal expansion. Because if you have a fully employed economy and the government spends more money, that would be inflationary, and we would raise the interest rate. So most of the time, uh, fiscal is not macro-relevant, but under these conditions, it is. So we at the ECB, in our, you know, when we make our statement, we do have a, a last paragraph saying, those uh, governments which are in good fiscal shape should be uh, alert. We still say those governments which have uh, excessive debt need to work on that. But uh, in Europe, we have a mix. We have a mix of uh, situations. Okay. So then we sort of drifted into the issue of, uh, of fiscal policy. Um, is there a need for a European fiscal policy? And you know where I'm going with this. Great, so I, great, I think great uh, fiscal integration basically in yeah. the European Union as well. Again, this is a, a multi it's not a yes, no, a zero, one answer, black and white. Because uh, another, there's, a, there's a very popular logical sequence people have, which is the US has the dollar. The US is a big federal government. The EU has the euro. Therefore, the EU needs a big federal government. They say, if the US has it, then we need to have it. That doesn't follow. So what, we, you know, what I personally think is a lot of fiscal can remain at the national level. We already have fiscal union. We have the European Commission budget is 1% of GDP. Uh, through the European Stability Mechanism, through the ECB, we have, to a degree, shared fiscal resources. What we do say as the ECB, and many academics would say, is for dealing with uh, an international shock, it'd be more efficient to deal with it by having what's called a common fiscal capacity. Mm. This was a recently, a, a version of this was recently agreed at European level, it's not fully signed off yet, uh, which is small. The size of it which is needed to be helpful for macro is not that big. There are other versions like uh, unemployment reinsurance. So if unemployment goes up, there'll be partially uh, credits from other European countries. So I wouldn't over-dramatize this. I think we can make progress without saying all of the fiscal action needs to be at the European level. Okay. So a bit more than we have, I think would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot can remain at the national level. But what, what is true is even under the current conditions, every month, as you know, all the finance ministers meet in the Eurogroup. Having a collective uh, assessment of what is needed for the European economy, uh, having more of that in how fiscal decisions are made would be helpful. That is true in the crisis. In 2009, they moved together. Uh, but more routinely in the European uh, 
process, the all of these meetings people go to, identifying that essentially maybe more needs to be coordinated would, would also help. Do you find, since you sort of drifted into European decision making, um, you, the way you've talked about it there is a group of people getting you know, together and finding a, a sort of a way forward. Uh, but I know you don't work obviously in the, in, in the European Commission, but, but even in the, in the ECB, um, presumably with a major in international orbit, you, you have much more maybe of a sort of a diversity of opinion. Um, and again, I know everybody supposedly sort of goes in and, and, and uh, is, is, is supposed to leave their national identity at the door. But do, do you find working in that sort of European context that, that you know, people are coming with, 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 with different perspectives on these sort of questions? And then part of the trick is actually coming with a policy uh, solution that's an agreed position. So it is absolutely the case that the governing council of the ECB has 25 members. The uh, six executive board members, including myself, and then the head of each country's central bank goes. So that's 25, the 19 member countries governors. But the treaty says you go there as an individual. Your mandate is to work for the collective European interest. Not, so we never have a conversation where a national governor says, my country needs a higher interest rate or my country needs a lower interest rate. That is just, uh, we would view that as basically illegal. It's outside of the treaty to advocate on that basis. So it is very much where we look at the aggregate European data. But what is true is uh, how you grow up obviously influences your outlook on. It all goes down to the balance of risk. When you think about, well, everything has a risk. Uh, what is the risk of cutting the interest rate? It has negative effects and positive effects. And so people's attitude to risk is of course conditioned to how they were educated, their family experiences and all of that. Mm. So going to diversity, what's very interesting is we all recognize this. And so it does make both a kind of governing council level and a staff level. So my staff, uh, all the economists working at ECB, we've all sorts. And having, uh, it does make it for a very interesting workplace mm. because you have to, I mean, it's pretty obvious pretty quickly, you have to work in a way that you don't say, oh, that, that's a crazy idea. You know, you have to work in a respectful way because typically uh, there are elements of truth in everything. So kind of filtering out what is the correct policy? I mean, this is a commonplace in much uh, discussion, many walks of life, but diversity makes for better decision-making. Mm. And at the ECB, the geographic diversity is part of that. It's other dimensions, gender and other things. But geographic diversity, actually, I think uh, mm. is it, very helpful. Okay. I'll go to the audience in a couple of minutes, but there's just, uh, staying on sort of European economic issues, there's just a couple more uh, things that I'd, I'd like to get your, your views on. Uh, so when you were, again, in, in Trinity, you wrote a lot about fiscal rules uh, and the need for fiscal rules and the design and everything like that. Um, linking some of the, 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 the themes together, um, are, are, are you sort of convinced that the, the current structure of, of fiscal rules are appropriate? And again, just to sort of fill out the question a little bit, you constantly hear this refrain that at a stage of uh, incredibly low interest rates, investment gaps, 
the need for governments to provide the sort of public infrastructure that can be very productivity enhancing, to come back to the, the point about productivity, uh, that really we need more flexibility uh, in the fiscal rules to allow what many would consider would be very, very sort of sensible uh, investments. So where, where do you stand on all that? So it's uh, at one level you can uh, get into a super technical uh, discussion. Uh, uh, don't do that. Uh, just. <laughs> So if we start from, uh, let's imagine we did not have a European uh, set of fiscal rules. Could Europe have delivered the improvement in the public finance we've seen in the last decade? My sense is no. Yeah. It, you know, in the politics of fiscal policy, uh, the, ability, the importance, so even though, of course, it's at constant criticism that the government doesn't fully listen to the Irish Fiscal Council, for example. At one level, uh, you have to say, well, they, they may not 100%, but they listen quite a bit. And across Europe, the, the fact we now have all of these people saying, watch out, uh, if you take that risk, there are consequences. Uh, what we have now is a high degree of compliance with the fiscal rules. And uh, when you are trying to improve the public finances, that can help. Every so often you have to pivot, because actually then you, if you have to change gears and say, well, actually, there was a big cost to austerity, many costs to austerity, so, uh, and also recognizing uh, the imperative for public investment, uh, the imperative for addressing inequality, uh, climate change, there's many, elements where the, there needs to be maybe a reset. But let, let me uh, not disagree that the, uh, there could be some adjustment, but let me, uh, you know, I try to uh, point out there are two reasons why interest rates are low, which don't necessarily give a lot of comfort for fiscal policy. One is aging. The fact is a lot of people saving for retirement uh, is a downward pressure on interest rates. But we also know aging means, as you know, uh, the trend for public spending is going up. The cost of providing uh, care, uh, the cost of providing health care, and the fact that fewer people will be in the workforce means uh, there's only one direction for future public spending. So if you know there's a big uh, upward slope in public spending, how much you should borrow today is less. But just on, on aging, Philip, have you not heard the demographics will look after themselves? I mean, this is... Uh... And then uh, the, second, the second factor which is very interesting is one reason why interest rates are low is people uh, after the crisis have concluded, I better have a rainy day fund. Uh, so there's been a big switch in investing behavior towards holding what people consider to be safe assets like uh, German bonds, that kind of thing. Now there's two views of that. One is, that's right. Uh, before the crisis, we were too optimistic. And there were too many people who regretted heavily not having a rainy day fund after, during the crisis. And if that is true, and as you know here, the government had to spend so much money to manage the crisis in a very controversial way. So in that scenario, the interest rate being low is a signal to the government, maybe you need to build up a rainy day fund because risk is more than you believe. The other view is people have exaggerated. They, it's natural, and I, I keep on reading these headlines. Because we had a massive crisis, any little downturn, people say, 
the crisis is coming back. But so much has happened to reduce the probability of crisis. The European banking system has a lot more capital. We are very vigilant about credit. Credit is not blowing up. Uh, indicators of kind of uh, risk taking in the financial system are a lot less than they used to be. So when you kind of look about what is the probability of a crisis, it's a lot less. It's not zero, but it's a lot less. And th therefore, the more we have years of low, maybe, but stable economic performance, maybe people will relax a little bit. So it's a very interesting question about how much the low interest rate justifies yeah. fiscal expansion. It does to some extent, I agree. Okay. But how much, let's see. Yeah. Actually, just, you touched on it again a little bit there. Um, you seem sort of very positive on st financial stability. Uh, matters, but you know this sort of uh, train of thought, and again, this is again related to low interest rates because interest rates are so low uh, that you have a lot of money uh, seeking high yield somewhere, and that in, you know risky investment strategies are being adopted. So it may not be happening in banks, uh, but is is there a sense that there is a sort of a, a financial sector out there that that is reaching, and that there you know there could there could be fr fragility elsewhere, if not the banking system. Uh, there are mixed signals about that. I, very, I mean, and I think there's a difference between the US, where the, the kind of risk-taking culture has gone further. But in, in Europe, the, uh, if you were really embracing risk, you would borrow a lot. We're not seeing that. If you're really embracing risk, you would uh, highly value the stock market. The European stock market has gone up, but nowhere near in the same way as the US. It's not just the euro area, but UK. So our assessment is, is that uh, there's still a lot of risk aversion uh, in, in Europe. People have been so burned by the crisis that, and then when you look at the firms that are maybe taking, it depends on where you think about uh, what is the correct level of risk taking. In the crisis, risk taking came down a lot, uh, and therefore part of the recovery is getting used again to a degree of risk taking. Risk taking by investment funds, uh, which don't offer a, a guarantee to depositors, is very different to risk taking by banks. And so the fact that there is more risk taking uh, in the investment fund world, it's we definitely keep an eye on it, uh, but it is not the same category as risky behavior by banks, where they're promising to look after your deposits. It's a very different uh, situation. Okay, so I did say we'd, uh, at points during the uh, event, go to the audience uh, for some questions. So I'm going to look around. Would anybody like to kick off with a, with an initial question? So I see a hand in the back. We get a microphone to you, and if you could do the usual thing, just tell us uh, who you are, and then a, a nice, succinct question. Hey, hi. Um, I'm Jake. I'm a master's student in European governance in UCD. And I'm just wondering, do you think the ECB has a role to play in uh, tackling climate change and facilitating the EU's climate goals through uh, using monetary policy or things like asset purchase, but factoring in the climate impact that those policies can have? Okay, and do you want to just hold on that for a second? We might take another question or two. Uh, so I see another hand here, and again, if you can do the, the, the same thing. Um, hello, uh, Brian Price, I work in financial services. Um, you said earlier on um, some commentators and economists were exaggerating um, uh, some parts of the uh, last crisis. Um, how big of a problem is that now? Um, do we risk some economists talking us into a recession? 
Okay, so two nice questions. If you want to deal with climate change first, will that be okay? Right. Uh, and actually, again, I'm just amazed at the extent to which central bankers are now talking about climate change, yourself included, uh, when you were here. But take a run. Yeah. So first, I mean, there's a, a lot. We're doing a lot, and so one is it's already here. So people say this is some kind of future uh, challenge for the world economy. It's already here. So let me give you two examples. One is. More and more understanding the uh, fluctuation in the economy, uh, we end up looking at weather. So summer 2018, there was a, a big slowdown in the European economy, which it, you know, once you started hunting about what was going on, it very much connected to the fact that a very hot summer had disrupted uh, production. There's a very tight connection between the physical world and how firms produce water. Water is very important in all sorts of uh, acti manufacturing activity. If you're taking water from the river, rivers, which are too warm, it totally disrupts uh, your plants. Across Europe, uh, rivers are very important for transportation. So again, the fact that rivers have gone low in terms of depth disrupted uh, transportation. Uh, end of 2019, a big typhoon in Japan has meant the Japanese economy was knocked off quite a bit. Right now, by the way, it's a warm winter. So the warm winter means that some types of activity in Europe is higher than normal. Construction, for example, has not had to take off too many days in the winter because it's been so mild. So already, uh, and then the other big example is the car industry. The car industry is a big part of the European economy. Uh, it's had a big slowdown, big decline in production. Working out what's going on with cars is very tightly connected to the climate agenda. So no matter what else is going on, it's front and center in terms of what's going on, what's driving the economy. Uh, in terms of our policies, uh, we have a long horizon. You know, uh, we do have to recognize uh, that climate change can play out over a long horizon. And therefore, let's say the market gives a high value to some bond. But let's say we think actually that firm uh, is more exposed to climate change than, than is currently indicated. So you know we're looking at that. But let me emphasize, is the bigger issue for the financial system is not us, we deal with debt markets. The big issue is there needs to be a lot of equity investment, funding uh, new technologies. Uh, so, there's def you know, so where the risk is, is a degree is going to be in loans and the bond market, there's a bigger risk now, which has to be tackled by the equity system. Uh, I would point out, for example, what we have now, which is a very easy monetary policy, is very conducive to investing in green technologies. But the ability to invest in green technologies is limited because essentially there's a lack of clarity about what are the uh, carbon policies of European governments, or global governments for that matter. So the uncertainty, the what's holding back the climate transition is uh, a broader policy uncertainty. Uh, as you indicated, we have a treaty mandate to support the general policies of the EU. So as the EU has declared a direction of travel, as that converts into actual policies, I think it's going to be easier for us to support that. But I mean, it, as you say, it's difficult to overstate the pivot in the world of central banks. 
towards taking this on. Uh, essentially, since the Paris Accord, there's been a clear signal we, we have a broad orientation of where the world economy should go, and therefore we need to prepare. And I just brought, we'll come back to the question in a minute, but just staying with the, 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 the climate issue, and back to the point I was making earlier on about uh, fiscal rules and fiscal policy. Um, I mean, isn't this again another area that we really need to see substantial public investment very, very quickly? And just to add to this, um, I think as the President mentioned, uh, I started on the Climate Council about five years ago. And a lot of economists for a, a long time, I think, have been uh, not casual about climate change, but there was always the sense that once the carbon taxes were in place, you know, it was all about pricing uh, carbon and things would kind of flow readily from that. Uh, but I have to say, the, uh, the years I spent on the, on the Climate Change Advisory Council and seeing the urgency uh, of the problem coming closer and closer, I've moved way more in the direction of thinking that this is something that we need sort of significant public action on. Uh, which partly prompted some of my questions around this idea of fiscal rules and what's what's constraining it. Uh, so just moving sort of from the uh, the ECB bit and the broader economic bit, presumably you're, you're sympathetic to that sort of notion. Sure, I mean, I think there will be action on that, but let me, I mean, it'd be a mistake to say it's going to be all, you know, you're not saying it, but some people might say it's all about public investment. You know, I, you know, as you know, a, a year ago I wrote this, Piece when I was the government central bank of Ireland about the implications for the Irish financial system. I mean, I, I, as many of you will be aware, uh, there's a lot of a there will be a lot of private expenditure uh, renovating your home. Many homes across Europe, here in Ireland, elsewhere, their energy rating needs to go up. The case for that will be reinforced if the price of energy uh, gradually goes up, so people understand. The economics of renovation, uh, improving your energy rating, makes sense because for now there's a gap. Uh, but that, what that means is a lot of people will be diverting uh, their savings, or they will be looking for a low-cost loan from a bank because the government can subsidise, but they cannot pay for everyone's renovation. All the commercial buildings, uh, and you know, so there's so much that's needed to be done. By the way. The first level answer is the economics world says this is a significant, but it's entirely feasible. If we put our mind to it, it is not the case. It, uh, it is somehow an impossible project. But the earlier we start, the easier it is. Uh, but I think it has a lot of implications for the financial system because many private uh, individuals and firms need to invest. So a, there is a big uh, investment uh, need here. And then let me say, going back to fiscal policy, uh, remember if you have a carbon tax, you can collect quite a bit of revenue. So the idea that the only way to finance public investment is through uh, debt, that's maybe where there's a degree of resistance because it's not obvious that the, you should fund all of this through debt. Going back to the reasons, if you think with an aging population, there's many reasons to say, well, maybe uh, taxation needs to play a big role and actually having a carbon tax lines up a little bit with that. Yeah. I used to think that as well, actually, but uh, one of the things that, that became very uh, apparent very, very quickly is if you look at the revenues that come from carbon taxes, 
um, the, the, the requirement to redistribute those carbon taxes to offset the regressivity of the, you know, of the carbon tax, uh, because as we know, poorer people just spend a higher proportion of their income. Uh, so a lot of the discussion and the debate was taking the revenue and um, cushioning folks, and it really means the reality is that there's not an awful lot left uh, for investment. But anyway, we, we, we can go over that again. I do want to come to the question uh, that you asked. I think it's a really interesting yeah, so, uh, one. And it's me, a, yeah. Can I just add my yeah. little bit to this, actually, before you, um, this, you know, the idea of talking us into a recession or whatever like that. I don't know if you would share this view, but I think the economics community, because uh, a lot of us, myself included, missed the last recession, there's almost like this paranoia uh, that you will miss the next recession, and nobody wants to miss the bus this time. Uh, and so I'm always amazed the number of people who sort of seem to be so eager uh, to talk about recession. So I don't know, do you share that perception? And is it a real risk that you can actually talk things down? It's a very interesting issue. Um, by the way, the ESRI, because it's very supportive behavioral economics. Uh, Understanding the also the psychology and incentives of economists as well as everyone else is important. <laughs> uh, so there's a degree of that. I, I'm sure that's true. And this is why, by the way, in the end, uh, at a central bank, we have to play it down the middle because we spend a lot of time thinking about are we biased? You know, because uh, we we uh, there's a risk of being too optimistic. There's a risk of being too pessimistic. And uh, it's very interesting. I mean, of course, it's important to listen to all sorts of people. And as you know, in, in that pre-crisis period, uh, there's been a lot of studies that show uh, media naturally goes to either reinforcers who are you know, reinforcing the optimism or people who are very uh, negative. The kind of down the middle people don't get too much media attention. I think that r remains true. So, one element is now about talking down in response. So I do say, when you look at it objectively, there are important reasons to believe the uh, crisis vulnerability has gone down. A lot has been put into making the banks safer, very expensive, but they are safer, making government safer. Uh, if you look at here and elsewhere, households are a lot safer than they were. So some of the factors that were very destructive in 08 are not here at the moment. So I, objectively, recession risk or crisis risk is less. But it's, it's always lurking in the background. And if you like, uh, my analysis, you know, we, we always have to see what the Irish economy is. It can grow very well. It's growing very well at the moment. But there's objective reasons to believe because of the nature of the multinational sector and so on the reversal possibility is always there. And so uh, the temptation to say after many years of growing well, we'll always grow well, that's tempting. So having uh, running against that is, I think, uh, very important. Another way of saying this is crises are rare, but they're very expensive. So if someone says five years in a row, uh, there's a risk here, and they're always wrong. Some people are tempted to switch off. And you know, if you, the example, say David McWilliams, for many years was saying there's a risk, and many people say, well, the uh, it hasn't happened, and therefore I'm going to stop listening to you. Uh, but then the relevance of, of people saying there was a risk here 
There's a, so going back to uh, maybe uh, this topic of how do we listen, how do we think, especially in a world where media is very different now with the internet, the decline in mainstream media and so on. It, it's for all sorts of questions, understanding how we collectively understand what's going on. It's very difficult. Um, I'll go to the audience again if, if for a question, but you did say I'll give you, but you did say something important there actually. Uh, well, everything you said is important, but I'm going to pick up on something that's particularly important. Uh, and you mentioned multinationals and reversal. I think was the yeah. phrase, the phrase you mind to use. Um, I, I think a lot of people, yeah, would have the view that the actual single biggest threat to the the Irish economy is, as you describe it, as a re reversal in in the FDI flow, and that doesn't even have to be the physical flow anymore, it can be all these intellectual property. Uh, so there's two huge worries we have. Um, we have, what is it, about 200,000 jobs in FDI firms, uh, the 10 billion in revenue uh, that is, is there now, and you, you clearly have a, a global dialogue now around international, the, the taxation of internationally mobile firms, and I think there's a sort of a, a strong movement there to say that, that things have to alter. Uh, so just reflecting on that bit again, a little, how, how worried would you be uh, about the, the Irish economy and that reliance on the FDI sector? I, I think it's important to, the starting point here is, this has been a very successful uh, economic strategy to be the host to multinational firms. And over recent years, it's been even more successful than might have been expected. Partly because of the nature of the world economy, relying less on physical infrastructure and more on uh, uh, the ability to trade, whether it's over the internet or trade uh, items which are not very expensive to move around like pharmaceuticals. So the fact that this is a remote location is no longer a big barrier to uh, activity. So uh, recognizing uh, the, that this is a, a global economy, embracing globalization continues, to, I think, to be a very successful strategy. But uh, when I think about this, I often use the phrase tail risk. It's not that it's very, it's, I don't say it's likely to be a reversal. I don't say this is something that's imminent, because many indicators are it's, you know, continuing very robustly. But protecting ourselves from that reversal does mean uh, being cautious in terms of the public finances. And essentially, so this concept uh, uh, is essentially, listen, uh, we need to be uh, uh, recognizing there's a, a kind of uh, risk of that reversal. In the same way, if you find oil, Norway finds oil. They know this oil is going to run out, and therefore a lot of the revenue is put away for a long-term investment. We don't know. Maybe all of this revenue will be here forever, but the economics to say maybe some of it will reverse is sufficiently plausible that not putting all your bets on it continuing seems wise. Because if you have a reversal and you're not prepared, uh, the cost in terms of austerity, recession, we know how that goes. So I did see another couple of hands, uh, I do believe. So we get a microphone to somebody in the back. Hi, I'm Tom, I'm a physics student at Trinity. Um, 
seen that in Southeast or Asia, in say countries like Taiwan, uh, South Korea, and where else? Well, we'll take them too, anyways. But it seems that there were a couple of government policies that sort of led to fairly successful um, growth in terms of land redistribution and focus on manufacturing and then sort of credit allocation to uh, to companies rather than to the consumer. Um, Ireland is kind of seems to be farther along than them countries. I don't think we're a nation of so peasant farmers any, anymore. But do you think there are sort of government any government policies that you think would be sort of some applicable today for, for say a country like Ireland or similar for inducing uh, growth? Okay, let's let maybe just take another question. I think to see another hand somewhere. Thanks. Uh, my name is Justin McKenna. I'm a solicitor, and I also completely missed the last recession. Um, my question might be slightly unfair because, Philip, you did say you're not a futurist, but um, there's no doubt that an awful lot of work has been done to beef up regulatory capital, etc., in banks. Do you think there's a risk, however, that we're very well prepared for the last recession and not for whatever black swan causes the next one? Okay, and can, can we take one more? Uh, I think there was a hand here, so can we just get a microphone here and then we'll swing back to you. Thank you. Um, John Moore, I'm working in financial services. I'm going to ask the um, Brexit question because there hasn't been one yet. Um, equivalence, um, commission granting equivalence to the UK, good or bad for Europe, and vice versa, good or bad for the UK going forward. Great, okay, so we've got uh, sort of growth policies, black swans, and Brexit. So, so the, the question about the regulatory capital in banks, uh, the beauty of looking for sufficient capital, it's an all-purpose risk manager. It doesn't matter where, if the, if the next recession is coming from the multinational sector, coming from a domestic factor, you want the banks to be safe no matter what. So asking for banks to hold enough capital is kind of general purpose insurance. It's there no matter what. Uh, if lurking behind your question is, well, maybe the banks won't be at the center of the next crisis. We also would agree the international financial system has shifted significantly away from banks to non-banks. Uh, so we also spend a lot of time uh, thinking about those scenarios, highlighting that we don't have the same policies in respect to non-banks as we do to banks. But let me go back to a basic point we had earlier on. Banks are fundamentally different. Uh, if, because uh, they also have a, a core role in the monetary system and in minding your money, the promise made by a bank to you especially if you're below the 100,000 uh, guarantee limit, is we will keep your money safe. Someone putting their money into a property fund or something else, they know they don't have a safe return. So if you like the kind of a uh, mismatch where someone thought their money was safe and it wasn't, you know, until the government had to expensively step in, is very different to a situation where uh, the al alignment of risk is different. And one of the big questions, as many people know, is, is that really going on in investment funds? Do people who put their money in really understand on the different scenarios uh, that fund could go illiquid, it could suffer more severe losses than you, would, you might think? 
and there is a, the typical uh, race for the exit scenario. Uh, but if you ask me, are we better off with being a bank-dominated financial system versus a system where the non-banks may be riskier, but the dispersion of risk in itself is, is good? So you know, I think uh, we, we have to keep an eye on this. Um, let me turn to break. Well, I'll do the. So I think uh, the economics profession has become a lot more eclectic about what works and what doesn't work in terms of state policies. So the idea that the state, I mean, look at this country. I mean, the IDA has been uh, very important and it's acknowledged universally as very, very successful in helping, if you like, to pick winners, identifying firms. And Enterprise Ireland, in relation to local firms, I think plays a valuable role. Uh, what is interesting, though, is uh, there are trade-offs. So uh, the fact we have this very successful FDI sector does mean that workers are more expensive, competition for resources in this country is more intense, which makes it more difficult for local firms to grow. I mean, there is, there is that kind of very basic uh, factor. But collectively, the FDI sector is so productive and so successful, maybe that's a trade-off we, we want to live with. But I'm not going to disagree with you. Uh, the government, and maybe 15 years ago, remember the big uh, review of industrial policy? Uh, all the time, the government should be looking, looking again. And uh, as you know, uh, many people would, would say uh, state-funded R&D, many other ways can help. But I don't think there's any one particular formula uh, on that. On Brexit, there's many dimensions to Brexit. Uh, the question about the financial system and equivalence, to me, it's nearly a tautology. If the systems are equivalent, fantastic, and therefore we will treat them equivalently. So if, I mean, essentially the logic is, if we think uh, the provision of whatever, banking services, uh, derivative services, other services from London is uh, e equivalent to what would happen uh, in the EU, uh, we would be happy for this activity to be in London. That's, that, that's basically, it's a totality nearly. It's, of course, it's obvious, that's fine. The question is, if it drifts away, if there are even where, if there's a risk of a different change, so if you have a situation where we assess under difficult, in a stressed scenario, a crisis scenario, uh, the regulatory infrastructure in the UK would be harmful to the interests of Europeans, then they are no longer equivalent and they would not be treated as equivalent. So if, if you like, it's, it's a very interesting situation because of course the starting point is the same. They were in the EU until just now. So you might say there's obvious equivalence. But you know, if you listen to the uh, discussion in the UK, if, if there are material moves away from equivalence, then you know, it, it just does not persist. But please remember, if you think about there's so much integration with the US financial system. We can live. We can, the regulatory world has so many ways to cooperate. Uh, we cooperate with the US, Asian regulators, so you know there would be a lot of uh, uh, negotiation. Uh, you know, we can work things out in the financial world. The bigger uncertainty with Brexit is trade, because uh, trade it needs some kind of trade agreement, and let's see what happens this year. 
Okay, uh, I'm conscious we've had five questions and all the questions have been men. Uh, would any of the women in the audience like to ask a question? Okay, be thinking about it, okay, but that, that, that is the rule about the next, uh, the next question here. We talk a little bit about Ireland, um, and I know we, we, we have touched on it a little bit in the context of the discussion there about the, the multinationals, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't want to put you in a position of being over political or anything like that, but in terms of the, dis the discussion that raged for the last uh, couple of years around whether or not public debt should have been run down more quickly, um, you know, the, the, the argument that even though the government eventually moved into surplus, that we're still a relatively high debt country and that more should have been done. Uh, do you want to comment on that? I know what you would have said, like, had you been here. I think I know what you would have said. I mean, we, I mean every year, as Governor said to Bank of Ireland, I mean, I would have written a letter to the uh, Minister of Finance where, let me pick a middle ground here because. The world is not run by economists. So what we, as an you know, you or I, I'm pretty sure would have, economically, when you have an, I think the question is, the Irish economy has grown very quickly. The, are we at full employment? We're getting closer. But are we overheating? We're not yet. So I, I think the issue is, you know, I think, uh, um, my, my, uh, the way I used to phrase it was basically, at some point, be prepared to recognize the duty of fiscal policy to avoid overheating. But uh, you know, it's we weren't, we're still not there. So the idea of uh, so, so at that level, the necessity to run uh, big surpluses to avoid overheating, we're not there yet. No, but the second question the, is the windfall. Yeah. The windfall. On top of that, we have this windfall of corporation tax, no one expected, uh, which is a lot bigger than uh, any protection. And if you have a windfall, the question is, do you 100% spend it or do you hold it back? And that is the big uh, question here is, how much of this is going to be every year versus how much of this is at risk? And uh, you know, in terms of that balance of risk, if you didn't have uh, political constraints, probably the economists would put more aside for the rainy day. Um, and that's going to, that remains a big issue. Is uh, you get we have some reasons to believe it may fall. On the other hand, there are other reasons to believe it may continue for quite a while. And so it's. And let me come back to the last point, which I think is recognised. After a number of years of very low public investment. Uh, using so far a lot of the windfall has been to support the recovery in public investment. Uh, it hasn't gone into day-to-day -day spending to the same degree. So at that level, if you like going back to saying, well, the fiscal rules are constraining public investment, the windfall has allowed public investment to recover here. Uh, so I think for the future, it's a very relevant debate, but so far maybe it's been managed in an okay way. Okay, interesting. Okay, we're, we're coming towards the end. I do have another couple of questions, but my offer of a, uh, a female questioner. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the encouragement. Um, my name is Lena Hughes. I work with SEAI, Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. 
Um, I just was interested by what you mentioned about the possibility of the market overheating um, and what could be done about it. So what would be the signs to look out for? And if it did overheat, what would you be thinking about doing about it? Okay, do you want to just hold that for a second? Because I think there was another hand. Um, okay, so we'll just maybe take one more, uh, but halfway down. And then Philip, you just take the two. Donald uh, um I have two questions which may be based on a misunderstanding on my side. The first is, if I've understood it correctly, the European Central Bank's mandate uh, is basically on, is almost exclusively on inflation uh, and not to do with employment in the Eurozone. And my understanding that that uh, was changed in the United States by legislation. Is that something that you think should be, um, should be done here uh, in, in the Eurozone? And the second question may also be based on a misunderstanding of a paper by a gentleman called Scharf, who was director of the Max Planck Institute for the study of societies in, uh, based in Cologne. He said that uh, one of the things that happened is that setting up a Federal Republic of Germany, they tried to uh, basically get fiscal rules into the constitution and they failed. But they succeeded uh, by doing that at a European level because a lot of the officials went over and they, in practice, uh, got uh, a lot of kind of fiscal rules more or less put into the European constitution uh, way of doing things. And he called for a change uh, in that and pointed out that something similar had happened in the States in the 30s, that Roosevelt's New Deal was held up by a Supreme Court judgment until the Supreme Court uh, reversed itself. Now, maybe I've misunderstood both those two points. Okay, so overheating, uh, some fiscal rules, and the mandate, the ECB mandate. Okay, so when we think about the, if the European economy was overheating, then the ECB could respond to that by tightening uh, the interest rate and credit. For an individual economy, uh, which is possible for a small economy to overheat, we couldn't respond as the ECB. So uh, I think uh, there is a role for Central Bank of Ireland, which is already embedded because the way the uh, mortgage rules work, they have a, an automatic uh, stabilizer function. But it does go back to uh, what's been a recurrent theme in this conversation, that fiscal policy is not only about meeting the, if you like, the uh, political demands for all of the priorities the electorate wants. There is also a macro role, which is uh, if the economy is overheating, pull it back a bit. If the economy slows down, uh, support the recovery. And this is something that uh, is very difficult to put into the political process. But what's very interesting is that if you look across countries, the countries where they've recognized that macroeconomic role for fiscal policy, that is most uh, advanced in Scandinavia. If you have a, a, a society which really values public services, you really hate austerity. If you really hate austerity, in the good years, you build up the reserves. See, if there's a slowdown, you don't have to do the uh, cutting uh, that would otherwise be required. So it's a big... Uh, a challenge to move in that direction, but the economics uh, does say it's important. Uh, 
the what's the second question? The question uh, was uh, remind oh the mandate and then the issue about fiscal rules. Uh, the evolving thing about fiscal rules, one element of fiscal rules is uh, basically helping highly indebted countries reduce the debt. At some point, however, you want to uh, switch that off because if the debt goes towards zero, then uh, that causes its own problems. So if you like a, a hybrid rule which says until, you know, once you get to the safe zone, then you can uh, change your attitude is probably a good idea. Uh, the Supreme Court did a lot of things in the 1930s. It's very interesting uh, interaction of law and uh, economics. Uh, but the, the exact details you have there, uh, I think we, we, we shouldn't get into. On the mandate, it's very interesting. The primary mandate is price stability. But the treaty also says, so long as you are delivering your primary mandate, then you have a, a mandate as to support the general economic policies of the EU, including uh, sustainable employment, environmental sustainability, and other consider financial stability. So as a matter of practice, I don't particularly think there's a big difference. And people say, put a blindfold on and say, uh, here's the Fed's policy, here's the ECB's policy. In fact, if you put the blind, you've just run the computer, uh, we pretty much act the same way. Uh, because uh, you know, the, uh, the mandates are sufficiently flexible to do that. So I don't think, as of now, it's a big issue. There are scenarios where it could be an issue, uh, but as of now, I don't think it's a big issue. There's not too much conflict. Okay, I have to hand back to the, the, the president in, in a moment, but I'm, I'm just gonna ask one last question, if, if that's okay. Um, and it's, it's around the, the effect the Great Recession had on the, the study of economics, the discipline of economics. And obviously a lot of criticism uh, of, of, the, of the subject and profession around that time. But can I ask you, do, did the Great Recession have an impact about how you think about economics and how you do economics or, and what you would teach if you were back in the classroom? Yeah, so at one level, so all sorts of uh, uh, lessons have been learned. A big lesson is there used to be a pretty big divide between uh, economics and finance. So you could think about monetary policy, uh, you could think about banking without worrying too much about the plumbing. Because easy, the financial system is in the background, those who care are working on that. But if, it's, if it's, everything's okay, if the plumbing is works, you kind of ignore it, it's in the background. Now understanding the intertwining of economics and finance is very important for, for the macro level. Uh, so now I think it's, it's very important to understand. So by the way, this is where, if you look globally, a lot of the really productive work in the crisis came out of business schools. Because they, they had a much closer connection to Wall Street which is where the problem was. And therefore, they, they had the proximity to understand. So that's been, it's been a huge intellectual endeavor. Uh, but let me emphasize, you know, people say uh, the economics world uh, missed the crisis, they, they didn't forecast it, therefore it's useless. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I think it, that's a totally wrong way to think about economics. Uh, 
I do think many people should have spent more time worrying about what was going on beforehand. Uh, but economics has been very important in fixing the crisis. Uh, you know, whether it's in the universities, in the Department of Finance here, the central bank here, the ECB, the IMF, so much went on to make sure this crisis was addressed in a tough way, but not in a way that made it worse. And so there's a lot of uh, very important uh, service provided by the economic profession that, in, that, in that way. And I also agree that now these days, uh, teaching economics with a lot more real world uh, data and examples, I think it is better than just viewing it as a, but by the way, the Irish universities was never in the camp of just viewing it as applied mathematics. The Irish economy, uh, the universities, Trinity, ECD, all of them have always been very uh, much more practical than the critique of economics in some countries where it's seen as too, too uh, remote from, from what was going on. Nope, very good. I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, a good, good note for the profession to end on. I'm going to hand back to, uh, to the president. But before I do, uh, there's a couple of people I would like to thank. Uh, so uh, a couple of people helped me in the preparation of this. So one was uh, Olivia O'Leary, uh, who, who basically gave me a little bit of tutoring on how to structure uh, events like this. And then John McCarthy, the, uh, the chief economist of the uh, Department of Finance, uh, basically gave me all the tough questions. I okay. wouldn't, have known, uh, wouldn't have known any of this, uh, to, be, to be perfectly honest. Um, obviously, I know I always like to thank the, the staff of the RIA on occasions such as this. Um, obviously, the, the, the audience is great. There were so many people here. And uh, I know the president will probably thank you, but I'd like to obviously extend my own appreciation sure. for you. your